Welcome to Ballistic Radio. Join us as we discuss hard-won self-defense lessons, as well as the information you need to survive a violent encounter. Listen as armed professionals, industry experts, national champions, and gunfight survivors answer all your firearms and self-defense questions while exploring your rights and responsibilities as an armed citizen. Ballistic Radio, brought to you by Surefire, the professional's choice for suppressors and illumination tools. Surefire, America's beacon of freedom. And now, here's your host, John Johnston. Welcome to Ballistic Radio, brought to you by Surefire, the professional choice for suppressors and illumination tools. Surefire, America's beacon of freedom. I'm your host, John Johnston. Remember, you can always listen to past shows at BallisticRadio.com. Get the latest behind-the-scenes info, arguments, photos, videos, tales of strange Ulysses. I've already done that reference, though, and you didn't get it the last time, and you probably didn't get it this time either. Yeah. Other stuff at Facebook.com slash Ballistic Radio. It's that hippie music. You were never a hippie. So. I was never a hippie. Actually, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> hey, anyway. co-hosting with me, it's the Danger Pixie, Melody Lauer. Guten Tag. Oh, I know that one, too. Hey, guess what? What's that? Well, one, I'm going to really try and get through stuff quick because I'm super excited about our guest. But also, hey, guess what? Too. What's that? This segment brought to you by Lucky Gunner and Federal Premium Ammunition. Whether there was a firefight or you do, in fact, want to worry about that little guy, you need more ammo. And when it's time to restock, you can't beat Federal Premium Ammunition and LuckyGunner.com. With a shipping department that's always moving at 88 miles per hour, if I order a case of American Eagle from Lucky Gunner on a Thursday, it's at my doorstep ready to shoot before the weekend starts. Head to LuckyGunner.com today to check out their in-stock lineup of Federal Premium Ammunition. Remember... Unless you're on fire or drowning, you can never really have too much ammo. So, <clears throat> I kind of want to say, speaking of firefights. Yeah, I know, right? I I don't know that I want to make light of it, though. So that's yeah, a, and that that's mm. why I was kind of like, mm. but but see, when but you, then when I you do said it, it and now yeah, we're here. So so I am I am super excited and very honored to have joining us uh, Ed Morales. Uh, Ed, how's it going? It's going well, John. Uh, how about you guys? Oh, can't complain at all. For those that don't know, because um, I, I know anybody that's a real student of, um, of the training industry or has been paying attention to the show, has just heard your name and gone, huh, that name sounds really familiar. Why does that? Do you mind telling who you are, um, what you do now, and also what your previous job was, I guess, before you retired? Okay, uh, well, let's start with the last part first. Uh, I'm a, a retired FBI agent uh, with 25 years in service, and uh, I was involved in uh, what's called the Miami uh, firefight incident in, uh, on April 11, 1986. Uh, I was one of, the survive- one of the participants and one of the survivors of that incident. Um, currently, uh, I'm, I'm retired from the FBI, retired in 2000 and 2000. And uh, have been out out in the uh, contracting world, uh, working as a police trainer with uh, the military and the State Department in in various countries. And uh, I uh, finally got time to to write a book, uh, you know, uh, outlining some of the uh, the uh, inside facts of the incident. Well, so the incident itself is is incredibly interesting. Um... And and I apologize too. So uh, clearly, I wasn't there. I've not ever spoken with any of the participants. Um, you you being the first that I've spoken to. So to me, uh, it, it's always been sort of an academic thing. 
And I know for you, it, it's a very real thing that had very real personal uh, and physical consequences. So I apologize uh, in advance that when I speak about it, that it doesn't have um, that emotional impact to me the way that it does to you. And I'm sorry for that because I, I, I want to try and be very respectful of this, this isn't history for you. Uh, uh, and so just wanted to get that out of the way. Um, okay, very good. For for those that don't know, uh, I'm kind of set the stage as far as the event goes. This is one of the most studied events in law enforcement history, probably the most studied event next to the shootout at the OK Corral. Um, and it had incredibly far-reaching uh, repercussions for not only law enforcement, uh, but also private citizen self-defense, uh, everything from tactics to uh, equipment selection, and even, you could argue, uh, birthed sort of the modern emphasis on terminal ballistic study. What, what started all of this? I mean, so there's a shootout on April 11th, but what, uh, you know, what, what's... Preceded. Yeah, what preceded that? What, what got us to April 11th, I guess? Well, um, in Miami, uh, Florida, and uh, specifically southern uh, South Miami, <clears throat> there were a series of uh, armored truck and bank robberies that occurred um, fr uh, from the summer of 1985 until uh, April of 1986. Now, in uh, in my book and in, in in official police and FBI records, uh, we can only uh, link uh, six incidents. Uh, to the the two perpetrators, uh, Platt and Maddox, uh, and the only, uh, the link is is through physical evidence. Right. Um, so, however, with the uh, the mo, the modus operandi uh, that these two guys had, we thought that there were an additional ten or twelve robberies that uh, we, as a collective uh, investigative group thought that they were involved in. So the number, you know, goes between six and, and uh, you know, 16 or 17 robberies that had occurred in that time frame. So, you know, the, these guys were pretty active. Uh, and uh, the some of the things that, that really stand out were, number one, they were uh, pretty vicious. Uh, they shot people indiscriminately and, uh, you know, almost like, for fun, yeah. and uh, secondly, uh, witnesses couldn't tell us uh, whether they were black, white, or Hispanic, which was you know pretty unusual. You know, after about fifteen events, sixteen events, you know, it's like, well, you know, can you tell us what these guys look like? Well, they were wearing black masks, you know, and gloves. You know, that's all I can tell you. And they had a big, big gun. Hmm. <laughs> you know, citizens always. Uh, you know, focused on the gun, and uh, and that was about that was about it. You know, as far as information. Well, so they were also, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, and I, I I know this was never proven, but they were also implicated in the murders of each other's wives too, weren't they? Correct. You know, there. You know, we had uh, some unusual circumstances regarding the uh, the death of their of their spouses that back in the um, in the early '80s uh, in Ohio, uh, but. When when the uh, the homicides occurred, uh, the husband, uh, the individual husband involved, you know, when when his his wife was killed, had an airtight alibi, you know. So in in other words, he was somewhere where people 
could you know several people could say yeah he was in he was a here at work working or he was in the bar drinking or whatever right so um again you know that this information came from you know lo, you know logical uh, you know you, you come to a logical conclusion and then and then additionally the uh the uh, uh secondary girlfriends and eventual second wives that were interviewed after the incident you know they said hey you know yeah they they kind of boasted about you know killing killing each other's wives you know so huh. there was no again no physical evidence to connect them just uh you know comments from from witnesses so we have uh two individuals that have already demonstrated a propensity for violence that was unusual uh even for criminals at the time uh, mm-hmm. right and they'd also had some uh military training as well correct uh they were both uh you know of all of all things they were both in the 101st airborne which is uh if anybody knows anything about military history, it's a it's an outstanding uh, unit. You know, it's like the 82nd. Yep. You know, they're 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 tough people. You know, uh, well trained, tough. Uh, you know, independent, uh, can do uh, organization. So uh, obviously, when they when they uh, got out of the service, they you know you take that knowledge and training with you, which you know became pretty obvious that they applied it in their in their second jobs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so we've got. We've got these two guys that are, we uh, find out after the fact they're the ones committing these armored car robberies, have done other crimes, too, that they have not gotten caught for. And so in the months leading up to April 11th, uh, you guys are essentially trying to figure out who's committing the robberies. Now, you were in, um, was, that, was that a specific surveillance unit, or was that a major crimes unit, or what was, the, what was the designation of the unit you guys were in? Were you just sort of tasked with whatever came along? We were uh, on what's, what was called the uh, violent crimes squad, um, you know, bank robbery, uh, fugitives, kidnapping uh, cases. So, I mean, we were, you know, in simplistic terms, we were the bank robbery squad. You know, the, you know, the old image of the uh, black and white movies, you know, cigar chomping, you know, fedora wearing guys, you know, <laughs> going out the door. Okay, let's go to the, let's go to First National Bank. You know, there's been a robbery. Uh, wasn't quite that dramatic, you know, but, you know, we were, we were in South Florida, you know, nobody wears fedoras right. in South Florida. You know, so so um, it, it was, uh, you know, your, your typical FBI violent crime squad. Okay. Uh, let's do this. we got to go to break. Uh, right now we are talking with the author of the FBI Miami Firefight, uh, Ed Morales. You're listening to Ballistic Radio. Welcome back to Ballistic Radio, brought to you by Surefire, the professional's choice for suppressors and illumination tools. Surefire, America's beacon of freedom. This segment brought to you by Wilson Combat. Wilson Combat, makers of the finest custom 1911s and scatterguns since 1977. Legacy of quality, innovation, and service. Learn more about their firearms and accessories, as well as the new EDC X9, which offers discriminating shooters 1911 match grade accuracy, superior ergonomics, and concealability with modern service pistol capacity and reliability at www.wilsoncombat.com. So we're talking with Ed Morales. Um, and before the break, you were saying that, so you guys were in the violent crimes uh, task force. So you've got these armored car robberies that are happening. And one of the things that uh, Platt and Maddox were doing was, I guess, going out to dumps or places where people would shoot and stealing guns and cars from people. Yes, correct. Uh, the uh, uh, Miami is kind of a, a strange place, you know. Uh, 
you have a, a lot of open area in a west, particularly west of Miami, called the Everglades. Right. And um, we um, we had um, had uh, reports of, of uh, some um, some individuals out there that had disappeared. And um, you know, initially, the FBI doesn't. I mean, we work kidnapping cases, but uh, we don't necessarily work on missing persons. Right. So it's it's kind of a fine line, you know, distinguishing you know what what a kidnapping is and what a missing person is, you know. So, and um, it wasn't until we uh, recovered a stolen car at uh, a robbery in uh, January in South Florida, the um, stolen car uh, was uh, registered to a family by the name of Brielle, and uh, obviously, you know, since it's it's their car, you know, we we were trying to figure out what the connection was. So I went to interview the Brielle family, and that's when I found out that the uh, the Brielle son Emilio had disappeared in um, late summer of '85, um, and um, you know the family was was trying to figure out where he was. You know they 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 were holding out hope, you know, against hope, but uh, you know they kind of knew what the what the uh, what the result would be. So we showed up and. They thought we had news on their son, but you know, in a way, in an indirect way, we did. You know, we we found their car, right? And that's when they told us that uh, their son had been target shooting out out in the Everglades, and uh, he disappeared. So we had a, a kind of a, like a marker out in the Everglades, right? And uh, you know, we went out there to explore and look, and you know, talk to uh, you know, the people that live out there, people that work out there, you know, uh, stores and you know, construction companies and so on. And it wasn't until uh, March that we got our, our, a tremendous break. Uh, Jose Calazo, uh, as, as chance would have it, uh, was out in the Everglades practicing his marksmanship. And uh, he was approached by uh, two white males. And, and I can tell you this because he survived. That's how we know it was two white males. Right. But he was uh, approached by two white males in a white pickup truck, and um, they chit-chatted with him, and then they pulled a gun on him. And uh, they told him, hey, listen, you know, we want your car keys, we want your wallet, we want your guns. And, oh, by the way, walk over to that lake. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he said uh, at that point he got a very, very bad feeling. You know, it's like, hey, take my car, take my wallet, you know, you know, take my rings or whatever, you know, but, uh, you know, just don't hurt me. But when he said, hey, walk over to that lake over there, it's like, oh, boy. So he knew he was going to, you know, get it. You know, <laughs> when I say get it, he knew he was going to be, you know, executed or, or shot and killed, you know. Oh. So he's, he's, uh, he's, uh, he had a good uh, survival instinct because he's trying to formulate a plan. And uh, for a, a non-professional, he was just a salesman. I mean, he had no tactical training. He said, man, I'm going to try to fight for my life. So he spun around and uh, attacked uh, one of the uh, individuals that was you know, kind of pushing him along to, to walk to the, to the lake. And he, uh, he fought with him, just struggling for the gun. And the gun went off a few times in between him. And, and then he was shot three times in the hand and the shoulder. And then he took a hit uh, to the face, uh, which was kind of a ricochet. But the shooter, this is my speculation, the shooter probably thought it was a, a killing shot. I mean, if you think about it, you shoot somebody in the face, it's probably not a good thing. You know? right. <laughs> mm -hmm. in, in this particular case, it, it wasn't a good thing, but it was a good thing because um, – it didn't hit anything vital, you know, uh, inside inside the the brain case. I mean, the head, the head, the skull. Right. Um, didn't hit his brain. Didn't hit his spinal cord. You know, it just basically went through some nasal passages and stuff. 
So he played possum at that point. He played dead and uh, hoped that he wouldn't get shot a fourth time in the back or something. So he was pretty lucky uh, they didn't. And um, he kind of just played dead, you know, and kind of heard them, you know, gather up his things. Um, They jumped in their pickup truck. They jumped in his uh, black Monte Carlo and drove away. Okay, once he felt that they were gone, okay, he stood up or staggered and uh, tried to figure out what to do. You know, he's out in the Everglades about a mile from a highway, and he has a tough choice. You know, hey, what do I do? Do I hope somebody comes to find me in a couple of days, or do I, you know, try to do something to save myself? And he decided to, to try to do something. So he walked about a mile out to the highway and, and flagged down a car to, to get him some help, you know, which someone someone eventually stopped. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> and... Um, that was our our first live witness to uh, the two individuals that would end up being platmatics um, and um, the rest of it kind of just evolved from from that point you know it um, it uh, was definitely brought home uh, when uh, like about a week later uh, a witness saw a black car. Uh, during a robbery in South Miami. And uh, that car, uh, the witness was a law enforcement witness, um, got the the tag on the car. And uh, he saw that it was a Florida tag, NTJ891, and um, it verified that it was Colazzo's car. So we had a direct link between the the two attempted, the two... uh, 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 people that assaulted Calazzo out in the Everglades with a robbery. So we, we knew we had two white males and a white pickup truck and a stolen Monte Carlo. So that kind of got the whole squad in gear. Okay, now now we've got some solid leads. Uh, we've got a general description of the two uh, the two robbers, a general description of their personal car, and a very detailed description of the stolen Monte Carlo. So. Interesting thing, um, Gordon McNeil was uh, at firearms training on April 10th, and uh, he was out there with Ben Grogan, who's the case agent, and um, they said, uh, they were talking about the case, and Gordon said, hey, listen, uh, Ben, I have a hunch, you know, the last time these guys hit, they only got about $6,000. He said, uh, the majority of the time they hit, uh, they they rob is on Fridays, it's like 50% of the time they hit on Fridays. And then the other 50% they hit on, on the rest of the, the days of the week, you know. So so he said, hey, tomorrow's Friday. You know, they, they haven't robbed anybody in three weeks, and they only got $6,000. What do you say we get together for a surveillance tomorrow? And Ben said, yep. And uh, the, rest is, the rest is history. So we got, we got about two and a half minutes left in this segment. Okay. Um, okay. Um, and, and then uh, well, the Well, let, let me ask you a question, actually, real quick. Um, okay. <clears throat> so the car they stole from Colazzo, uh was a black Monte Carlo. The car they stole from Brielle's was also a Monte Carlo. Correct. Did correct. that strike I, anybody I that was just, at the time? I think that was just coincidence. Okay. I, I don't think they had a, a, a like or a propensity to, to steal Monte Carlos. You know? <laughs> yeah, I, I wasn't... You were just popular in Miami at the time, John. Well, I don't know. Could, could have been. Could uh, have been you know? it, it was just, it's always something that, I mean, it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't affect anything. Uh, it's just always something that had kind of stuck in my mind, and I figured yeah. since so I, it, it, I 
mean, I, I thought the same thing. I said, what, what is it about the Monte Carlos? You know, and I, I personally, I think it's just coincidence. Yeah. Um, so we've got about a minute or so left in this segment, and we're, we're getting into the incident itself. But just real quick, uh, so when did you find out you guys were going to be doing a surveillance on the 11th? Did, did uh, Grogan or McNeil, like, call you the day before? or they, uh, Gordon, uh, Ben Grogan called uh, in the afternoon on April 10th. Like I said, they were at firearms training. Yeah. And uh, talked to the bank robbery coordinator, Steve Warner, and they said, hey, listen, you know, Gordon wants to run a surveillance tomorrow morning in, in South, South Miami. And uh, Ben asked uh, Steve, said, hey, why don't you see, you know, canvas the, uh, the guys on the squad, see who can help us tomorrow. And uh, Steve said he'd take care of it, you know, and then he made the announcement, you know, you know, call some people on the phone or, or talk to them when they came back in off the street, you know, and said, hey, uh, Gordon wants to run a surveillance tomorrow, which is pretty short notice, you know, because right. some guys had court hearings, other guys had interviews planned or meetings with uh, with prosecutors, you know, so not everybody on the squad could attend, you know. Right. Out of the 16 guys on the squad, only 10 of us uh, could could attend the, uh, or could help on the surveillance. Okay. Um, that's a good place to pause, uh, and then we will, we will get into the events of the 11th itself. Right now, we're talking with the author of FBI Miami Firefight, Ed Morellis. You're listening to Ballistic Radio. Welcome back to Ballistic Radio, brought to you by Surefire, the professional's choice for suppressors and illumination tools. Surefire, America's beacon of freedom. This segment also brought to you by Surefire. Know your target and what is beyond it. But how can you really know your target? By shining a really bright light at it, and that's where Surefire comes in. From the new 1200 lumen EDCL 2T handheld or 500 lumen EDCL 1T handheld to the 1000 lumen XH35 or 1500 lumen M600 DF Scout Light, Surefire can make sure you never have to yell with these lights ever again. Surefire, the professional choice for suppressors and illumination tools. Remember, just for listening to Ballistic Radio, you can get 20% off everything at the... The Surefire.com web store accept batteries and suppressors by entering the discount code Aziz Light. A Z I Z L I G H T, no space. So we're talking with Ed Morales. And so you've just found out that there's going to be a surveillance tomorrow. Only 10 of the 16 members of the squad can make it. Let's fast forward to the next day. So you ended up with um, 14 individuals, I want to say. That's correct. Okay. Well, we, uh, uh, unbeknownst to me, uh, Steve Warner had uh, contacted the uh, the Homestead uh, agents. Who, Homestead is a satellite office out of the Miami office. Right. So uh, with the supervisor and, and all the age, field agents, that we had 14 individuals out there on surveillance that morning on, uh, on April 11th. Okay. So um, before we get into the traffic stop, I think this is something that I myself have been um, – uh, not clear on, and it was really nice actually to get to read the book and have a better understanding of this. But for the longest time, one of the things that people said was, you know, uh, m- more utilization of long guns might have had a, a, a more positive outcome on stuff. Now, you actually had guys that were, I guess, designated almost as the heavies. Uh, one individual armed with a an actual Colt M16, uh, the other with uh, an MP5 submachine gun, uh, almost everyone had a shotgun available to them, either in the car or in the trunk of the car. Uh, but there were some weird coincidences that happened right around when the traffic stop took place. 
That, that's correct. Uh, you know, it, it's almost. I mean, it's it's hard to believe unless you you put it in you know in in in, in order. Yeah. Um, but it's like like I like I say in my book. You know, it's time and chance. You know, it's like the biblical saying. You know, it's like hey, you know, the the, the race doesn't always go to the swift. You know, and and uh, nor the fight to the strong. You know, time and chance happens to everybody, and and that's what happened. You know, uh, <clears throat> uh, Bobby Ross who had the M16 and and. Uh, Terry Nelson, who had the MP5, had uh, notified their their little unit in their in their section of the surveillance that they needed to go to the bathroom. You know, so uh, I mean, they, they you know that's just that's just life, you know. And then uh, Steve Warner uh, in my area said, "Hey, I'm going to go in and check the uh, with the bank manager to see when uh, deliveries w- will occur during the day." Right. So these three guys were, uh, you know, out of pocket, and uh, obviously the the two most heavily armed agents <laughs> on surveillance, you know, were 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 not were not on on the air when when uh, Ben Grogan and, and Jerry Dove uh, made the announcement. You know, they something that's always stuck in my mind, you know, and probably will until the last day I, I live. You know, is attention all units. You know, we're behind a black Chevy Monte Carlo, Florida tag NTJ eight nine one. Those those are exact quotes from Ben. You know, so well, it was like, oh, my God. <laughs> and it's, I think a lot of people, too, don't understand. Um, you guys had literally been on the surveillance for less than an hour when you ran into the car, hadn't you? I think we had been the actual – I know some of, some of the guys had just set up. Mm-hmm. I know uh, we had been on surveillance. I mean, aside from the briefing, aside from, you know, everybody getting their gear, you know, Putting it where they needed it or they thought they needed it, and driving to our our surveillance location, looking around. Okay, okay, where are the exits? You know, the the building exits. Where are the exits in the parking lot? And then, uh, being South Florida, you know, where is the nearest shady spot that I can sit and watch this bank? You know, right. we had been on surveillance for like five minutes, you know, of actual surveillance time before uh, Ben called out. You know, attention, all units. Yeah, it's, it's just like, it, it seems like, in a way, the you know, it, as an outside observer, in a way, it seems like it went the worst absolute possible way that it could have, and it also went the best absolute way that it could. It, it's it's a strange dichotomy. Um, it, it is you know, definitely you know. I mean, it's like it, it's a, it's a mixed bag. I mean, it, it's life. You know, I mean, some 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 things are great, and some things are terrible. You know. Right. And if I, if I could also bring up a point, you know, sure. some of the criticism that we've gotten over the years is like, hey, you know, we we uh, we should have notified the local police. It's like, oh my God, you got to be kidding me! I mean, we worked hand in glove with the the metro robbery unit. Right. Every single time, every every event that uh, that came up, they were involved with us. It just so happened that on that particular Friday, because of the surveillance was was called on such, such short notice. They didn't have time to to adjust their schedule, right. so they were already scheduled to work a, a, a different shift and on a different surveillance that uh, that was one of their priorities. So instead of working the, the day shift, they were they were uh, scheduled to work a, a an evening shift from four to midnight, uh, looking for some um, Circle K or Seven Eleven uh, robbers that had been plaguing you know the South Florida area, you know so. So they they were not involved, you know, because because they they had a different schedule. And then um, the marked units in the uh, the southern district of, uh, of South South Miami were notified, you know, saying, "Hey, we've got uh, the FBI uh, out here during surveillance." And they said, "Okay, we're uh, we're informed. You know, we'll we'll respond if anything comes up." 
I mean, that, that's all they could do. I mean, because right. you don't want a, a marked police car <laughs> yeah. following you around on our surveillance. Kind of defeats the purpose. Um, so, <laughs> exactly. So the call comes out. Uh, we're going we're gonna to skip around just a little bit just because I want to make sure that we have enough time to get the relevant points. Um, so uh, they, they make the call following the Black Monte Carlo with, with the tag. And you, you guys um, kind of begin this low-speed tail pursuit sort of thing. And um, at this point, when, when did you know it was them, and when did you know there was probably going to be a fight? Well, we knew it was them immediately, you mm-hmm. know, because they were in a stolen car. Okay, I mean, they, the owner of the car had been shot and left for dead. Yep. Okay, so I mean that was right. I mean that was right away. It's like I mean that's a pretty that's a no brainer there, you know. But the uh, the the issue of the of the fight, I mean, was totally solidified when during the course of the slow slow speed uh, pursuit, you know, um, and surveillance, when Gordon McNeil crossed paths with them, going you know he was going east and they were going west towards the, you know the very end of the surveillance. He saw, you know, and he, he called out on the radio, it looks like they're loading something up in the front seat of the car. It looks like they're getting ready to go. Mm-hmm. Okay, I mean, that's that's a big clue. You know, right. it's like, hey, you know, he didn't specifically say, you know, uh, I think he may have said long gun. Yeah. You know, but uh, he didn't say it was an assault rifle or a shotgun. But, you know, either way, I mean, it, it didn't really matter. You know, I mean, any long gun is a bad thing. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. When it's pointed at you, you know. So, well, so personally, we like any gun pointed at me sort of concerns me. So you're you're a better yeah. man than I am if if the <laughs> threshold is long gun. But yeah. Um. So you've got uh, the call gets made to okay, uh, let's take them. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I know some people have been critical of that, but it strikes me that as far as if I had to pick a spot to apprehend two dudes that have shown a propensity to kill people. Um, doing it with a really good backstop and not many people around seems like a good idea. And that was exactly where you guys picked to stop him, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, actually, that was Ben Grogan. That's all Ben. You know, mm-hmm. he, he was probably scanning left and right, you know, left and right, you know. And when he saw that, he probably said, hey, this is the spot. I mean, you, you could not have planned a better spot with the backdrop, you know, of a, of a cinder block or cement wall, you yeah. know, in the background, you know. So so that was the intent, you know. But, again, people say, well, you, you guys planned it poorly. And <laughs> I, I have to, again, you know, get into my lecture mode and say, hey, there are two types of stops. Car stops, uh, compliant and non-compliant, you know, and, and this turned, turned into a non-compliant car stop right away. Well, and the other thing that I think a lot of people don't realize is that, especially looking at it now, um, a lot of the things that law enforcement and police know how to do these days directly stems from this incident. And, you know, you guys weren't trained on, like, the, the pit maneuver. Um, there, there was a lot of stuff that just wasn't very in vogue at the time anyway, so... You you make this car stop, and what ends up happening is is um, uh, platmatics get boxed in, and you've actually got a moment where you're as the cars are smashing together, where you're looking at the driver of the car. Correct. So the issue is that with the format of the show, we're not going to be able to go through the entire uh, course of the shooting, which which I would strongly recommend people if they're interested buy your book, and you go into it in, in great detail, but. Several things happen after the car is stopped, um, <clears throat> and the robber's car ends up under a shade tree, 
Uh, and a lot of the agents, yourself included, start out in bright sunlight. So, and then once gunfire starts, uh, visibility gets bad, and there's a lot of confusion. What are what were your initial thoughts after uh, the collision? Because you ended up hitting a, a tree at about 40 miles per hour, didn't you? Correct. You know, I mean, it was, you know, it's kind of a kaleidoscope of feelings and and, and events because um, I was in what's called called flight or flight fight or flight you know, uh, mode or, or syndrome. Um, I mean, I was hopped up on adrenaline, you know, I, my, my senses were, were tuned up, you know, and as I believe I mentioned in my book saying, Hey, if I had not been hopped up on adrenaline, you know, that car crash, I probably would have been injured. I mean, I yeah. probably would have ended up in the hospital, you know, with a, with a neck injury of some kind, you know, but as it was, you know, I, I felt, <laughs> I hate to say it, I hate to sound, you know, like a, like an idiot, you know, I, I felt invincible really, you know, it's like, boom. Yeah. I mean, I just brushed it off and you know, opened the door and, and, uh, Again, your your instincts start working, you know, in, in overdrive, and and it's hard for me to describe to people, but I instinctively I knew where the bad guys were. I yeah. mean, I, I you, you wouldn't even have to point them, you know. So I knew where they were because I, mean, I, I was moving in that direction when I came out of the car. Yeah. And uh, I, I'm not ashamed to say, you know, uh, it went from apprehension to, to fear, okay, because yeah. gunshots were being you know fired left and right, you know. So, and I ran across the street. And I made a decision to go to the left instead of to the right. To, uh, I went to the left to reinforce Gordon. And uh, that's where I was shot. And, um, again, I go through this explanation of about about the uh, fight-or-flight response. You know, I, I felt no pain when I was shot, which is an amazing phenomenon. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you get shot with a rifle, you know, you, you think you'd be, you know, screaming and squirming around, you know. But it's like it's like I had no clue. But when when... The point came that I realized that I visually examined my my body that I and realized that I had been shot. Then my fear went to to terror. Yeah. I mean, and, and I have no no qualms about saying that because it's like, hey, it's tough enough, you know, uh, trying to survive a a gunfight, you know, with two hands. Imagine trying to survive with only one. You well, know, let, so uh, let me interrupt you there because we've got to go to break, and then I want to pick up on that. Uh, okay. Right now, we're talking with the author and survivor of the FBI Miami firefight. Uh, Ed Morales, and you're listening to Ballistic Radio. Welcome back to Ballistic Radio, brought to you by Surefire, the professional choice for suppressors and illumination tools. Surefire, America's beacon of freedom. So we're talking with Ed Morales, and right before um, the break, you had said uh, you were you were running um, to to reinforce uh, uh, Gordon uh, on the left side of. The engagement, I guess, it's certainly an engagement, so we'll say the left side of the engagement. And at that point, you take a uh, a rifle round fired by Platt from a Mini-14, and it strikes you in the left forearm and comes about as close as is possible to amputating your left arm and not quite succeeding. That That is correct. You know, at, uh, uh, the because of the shadows... And uh, again, I was running from sunlight into a, a shady, shaded area, and there was uh, gun smoke up in the air. So it, it made, you know, uh, vision and observation a little tough, you know. Right. Plus, you know, I had the uh, the, uh, the the physical effects of uh, fight or flight, you know, the the tunnel vision and and so on. Sure. And uh, I, I, for all intents and purposes, you know, I ran right into the teeth of uh of platt's assault rifle he, he shot me from probably a distance of about 12 feet oh. but i never i never saw him you know because he was inside the uh 
the, the, the uh, stolen car, and the, the uh, tinted windows were up at the time. Yep. So I, I really couldn't see in, inside the car. Uh, eventually, you know, the window, the glass uh, uh, got broken, you know, from so many gunshots going through it, you know. Right. But when I was running across, you know, the, the tinted window was up, and I'm thinking, where, you know, where are they, where are they? And then, you know, eventually I ended up on my back, you know, so. Right. So let me, we, so this is the last segment of the show. We've only got about 10 or 11 minutes, but um, so what happens next? Um, and, and like I said, guys, you really need to buy the book. It's an incredible read. But through the course of this engagement, uh, everyone except Reisner is shot. And, and when I say everyone, I mean literally everyone that is, is there, um, FBI agents, uh, Platinmatics, Maddox, everyone is shot um, to varying degrees of severity. And there, there's a couple of interesting things that happen. Uh, one of them being that that Platt is struck uh, by Jerry Dove uh, with a nine millimeter round that severs his brachial artery and stops about two inches short of his heart. Now this this round causes some controversy, but but actually performed as designed at the time, uh, and on pretty much anyone else that probably would have been an effective hit. Do you think? And just wasn't for I Platt. Think, I think so. I, I think so. You know, survival is a is an individual uh, sport, you know. It's kind of like uh, like playing pool or, or swimming. You know, it's like, you know, and, and your your uh, your ability to survive, you know, depends on your experiences and your training. And, and a great big part of it is on your attitude. You know, if you have a positive mental attitude, you know, you, you can you can do amazing feats. You know. But if you have a negative, you know, woe is me, you know, I, I can't do this attitude, you know, right. then, you know, you won't. I think I quoted in my book, uh, Charlie Plum. He said, hey, uh, if you think you can or if you think you can't, you're, you're right. correct. Yeah. You know, it's like, and then it, it took me it took me a long time to figure that one out. I'm thinking, well, what does he mean? Yeah. No. <laughs> and so, then I figured it out. It's like, wow. Yeah, it's so simple. You know, so. But, uh, you know, again, you know, there's so much speculation, you know, it's like right. if, if somebody else had been shot, I mean, let's say uh, if I had been shot in that manner, I probably would have, you know, probably would have collapsed, you know. Yeah. Uh, but, then, but then again, maybe not, you know, who knows? Yeah. You know, so. Well, so let me ask you this. Um, so through the course of this, towards the end of the engagement, uh, Maddox is, is either taken out relatively early, at least temporarily, or... Um, doesn't participate much in the fight. Most of the fighting is done by Platt on their side. Is that a correct statement? That is that is correct. Okay. Yes. Um, so towards the end of this engagement, um, Platt uh, maneuvers on Ben Grogan and Jerry Dove and Jake Hanlon um, and executes uh, Ben and Jerry and tries to execute Jake. Um, and you you become aware of of that and um, do what what becomes an incredible feat of uh, perseverance in first firing around underneath the car and striking Platt in the feet with your shotgun, figuring out on the fly how to work the shotgun. Had you ever been trained in one handed operation of a of a pump action shotgun before that day? No, no, 
I, I, I have not, John. You know, but but uh, <clears throat> I, it's a funny little side story. When I was being recruited for the FBI, uh, one of the uh, agents that was recruiting me, he was a, a salty old marine, you know, and he he took me into the gun vault in the, in the Alexandria field office, and he goes, "Okay, I want to see if you can hold a shotgun." So he he had me hold a shotgun, you know, like normal people would. And he goes, "Okay, hold it with one hand." I said, "Pardon me?" He said, "Yep, stick it into your shoulder and hold hold it with one hand, your hand on the trigger guard." And he said, hold it up there for about 30 seconds, you know, and I did that, you know, and, and I'm, and I'm and the whole time I'm doing it, you know, and he, he, he let it run into a minute into a, to see if, if my my arm get, would get tired or the, if the shotgun would shake, you know. And the whole time I'm thinking, who in the world would fire a shotgun one-handed, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and lo and behold, a few years later I found out, you know. So. Yeah. Um, so... You eventually end up firing the rounds that stop the engagement. You advance on um, Platinmatix, who have have made their way into Ben's car and are trying to escape. There's a lot of other things that are going on there as well. But there's actually something – there's actually a quote from your book, um, page 103, and I, I found this to be interesting. Uh, and it was, I was also concentrating on the most important thing on my revolver, my sights and sight picture, and my sight picture was plat. Mm-hmm. What was, because we only got a little bit of time left, but what was going through your mind um, when you were advancing on them? I was, uh, honestly, I was convinced that I was going to die. Okay, I mean, I, I you talk about, you know, the old saying, oh, he's at death's door. Yeah. Well, yeah, I was right there. I mean, I was one step one more step into into death door and I would have been gone, you know. So, my I, it was a, there was a sense of urgency mm-hmm. uh, on my end, you know, because I'm thinking I don't know how many heartbeats I have, I don't know how many breaths I have left, you know, and um, I, and I wanted to make be absolutely sure that these guys did not escape, okay. And if, if uh, preventing them from escape meant you know shooting them to pieces or continued to shoot them to pieces. I wanted to make to make sure that that happened, and honestly, you know, a, a little personal uh, issue was like, hey, you know what? You guys shot me. You shot Ben. You shot Jerry. You shot Jake. You're gonna pay for that. You know, I mean, you're gonna pay for it on the street. You're not gonna pay for it on the, in the courts. You know, so that was my motivation there. Now, that's not necessarily a Christian thought, but I mean, it is. I, what it I, is. I think that anybody would forgive you that one. Um, <laughs> sir, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. Uh, we are out of time, and I apologize for that. But uh, we we need to have you back on the show because I'd like to get more in depth on this at some point. Okay, um, but, very good. But thank you very much uh, for writing the book, and thank you very much for uh, for being there. Uh, and and doing what you did, so I, oh, thank I think you, John. that uh, thank you for having me. Yeah, no worries, no worries. So, um, anyway, uh, guys, go and pick up the book FBI Miami Firefight should be available uh, by the time you hear this. It's available right now, actually. Uh, make sure you check out our website, BallisticRadio.com. Like our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash Radio. And, hey, keep leaving those five-star reviews on iTunes. We really appreciate it. It helps us out. Thanks for listening, everyone. As always, be safe. See you next week. Dun, 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 dun.